in the Old Testament, the gospel concealed. In the New Testament, the gospel revealed. We do have in the Old Testament uh, ceremonial laws and prefigurings that point ultimately to the way that God deals with us in Christ. And so the God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New Testament. It is simply that in the New Testament, we understand the fullness of God's grace and see Christ all over the place uh, in God's gracious dealings with his people but also have a fuller understanding of his grace because we get a full understanding of God's holiness and his just judgments and wrath that we deserve uh, but don't receive. And so in the book of Numbers of all places, we have an account of God dealing with his people uh, that is quite remarkable. In fact, the book is not about numbers really much at all. The first couple of chapters uh, give us a census and then a second census later in the book. But the Hebrew title of this book is the more accurate description of the book itself. The Hebrew title, Bemidbar, means in the wilderness. And so what we have here is not a book about uh, numbers and statistics, but we have a book about God in the wilderness with his people. And so as we get ready to read the word, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we love it when you speak to us, and we are so privileged to have the fullness of your revelation that is so accessible to us. We can open it in our laps and in our apps, and we can have such access to its reading and its teaching because you want us to know you, the fullness of who you are and whose we are in Christ. So pray that your spirit would come now and bear witness to the reading and preaching of the word that we might see Jesus. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before we get this morning to chapter 5, let's do a quick review of what we've seen so far in chapters 1 through 4, which really are those number sections And it's important for us to kind of have those and feel like we've really got those at our mental fingertips for the rest of the book to make any sense. Because this book, like every book of the Bible, has a purpose. It isn't randomly put together. And here the purpose is to call the second generation of Israel, we haven't even gotten to them, but ultimately to call the second generation of Israel to arms as the holy army of God. And so the basic outline is that we have in the first part of Numbers this constituting of the first army, and then we're going to later see the failures of that army in the march, and then the constituting of the second army, and that second generation that will go from the wilderness into the promised land, and is of great hope for us as we wander even now in the wilderness, moving towards the promised land. And so this covenantal interpretation that's distinct from dispensationalism especially sees Jesus Christ and the fullness of what Christ has accomplished and fulfilled for us. So chapter 1 of Numbers is about the census to determine just how many men are available to fight if and when Israel goes into war. They are to be the holy army of God, all of which points us to the reality that Christ has won our victory And so we are called to a spiritual battle. We've also seen in this the way that the people of God are an oddity, that we are what's called an edge-bounded group and a center-focused group. 
we are edge-bounded in that there is clearly defined boundaries of who is part of the family of God and who is not. You're either in the family or you're out of the family. But we're also center-focused in that we have this centrality on Christ and a unity that's created by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 then directs the 12 tribes of Israel to, to camp around the tabernacle. And it's a great picture and a foreshadowing of Christ who became flesh and tabernacled among us, such that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us, that we ourselves have become a temple, and that the Spirit tabernacles inside of us, so that even as a church family, we are being tabernacled um, so that the Spirit can dwell as a part of the family of believers. And so we camp around Christ, just as the Old Testament tribes camped around the tabernacle. And just as a person couldn't simply say, okay, I'm I'm an Israelite now, but must join a particular family and clan and tribe. So it is a person can't just say, I'm a part of the church now, but becomes a part of the local church family. So the New Testament church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. Old Testament Israel is the Old Testament church. And so what we see really helps us to understand who we are in Christ. Chapter 3, then, is this census of a 13th tribe, the tribe of Levi. And we see that the priests wear Levi jeans, right? Those who descend from Levi are those who carry out the priesthood. Coming into God's holy presence is not something to be taken lightly, and we see in this that God takes his worship seriously. One of the jobs of the Levites was to stand guard. They camped closer to the tabernacle, between the the tribes and the tabernacle, so that nobody from uh, the camps could approach the tabernacle without the assistance of the Levites. They stood guard to make sure that no one came that was not permitted to come forward. So also, we need a mediator in order to come to God. For us, that mediator is Jesus Christ. So the Levites foreshadow this priestly work of the great and final priest, Christ. We've also seen how the Levites redeemed the firstborn children of Israel right down to the exact number. And so we also understand that Jesus didn't die for an undefined number of people, but Jesus died particularly for his elect saints on a one-to-one basis. So Jesus died particularly for us. Chapter 4 last week gave us the specific duties of the three clans of the Levites when it was that the, uh, uh, the nation was to be on the move. So we had the Kohathites that moved the Ark of the Covenant itself and the most holy artifacts and elements of the tabernacle. They could not even look at them or touch them. Aaron and his sons would do the packing up work. But it was the Kohathites that then moved these holiest pieces that were all covered with a blue cloth so that when the nation would move from one place to the next, you could always see where the ark was because of the blue cloth over the top. The Gershonites, who descended from the oldest son, did not have this most honored duty. And we saw in that that God chooses whom he chooses, and everyone has their part to play. So it is also in the body of Christ Not everyone has the same role, but we have different roles and different responsibilities. And when everyone carries out their responsibilities together, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The third clan, the Merorites, show this even more by being charged with the most menial of tasks. They were in charge of things like tent pegs and the frame for the tabernacle. 
All of this focus on the tabernacle, though, was to focus on the dwelling of God with his people. And so we see that the God of the Bible, unique from all other gods, is that the God of the Bible, our God, is both transcendent but also imminent. Our God is the God who is high and holy, but is also the God who dwells with his people. And so it is that our prayers are, uh, are to the triune God, and in fact, God himself is involved in our prayers. Our prayers are to the Father that come by the intercession of the Christ at the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And all of that foreshadowed in the ceremony and work of the Levites and the Old Testament church community. So that takes us to chapter five. And we have three sort of case studies of what do we do when there is impurity, immorality, sin uh, that uh, seeks to pollute the camp? How can the camp stay close to the holy God when there is certainly sin that exists within the community? So we're going to look at these three case studies one at a time. First, from the first four verses of Midbar, chapter 5. Listen to God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has an infectious skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did this. They sent them outside the camp. They did this just as the Lord had instructed Moses. Now, of the many things in the Old Testament that sound strange to our modern ears, the whole idea of being ceremonially unclean has to be near the top of the list. Physical uncleanness makes sense, especially if you've ever been or uh, lived with teenage boys, right? But physical uncleanness is not what the concern is here. These were laws... Uh, about being ceremonially unclean. And in fact, there's lots of Levitical laws that deal not only with the ceremonially, but the physically unclean sense of infectious disease. In fact, Leviticus chapters 11 through 15 deal with the full scope of these uncleanness laws. But here in verse 2, we have three categories of these uncleanness uh, laws. The NIV translates the first category as infectious skin disease, which most others translate as leprosy. But the Hebrew word there is a more uh, all-encompassing kind of term that could mean something as simple as psoriasis or eczema. And you think about that with a group of people living in the desert. The sense is that everybody's going to experience this kind of skin malady at some point in time. Uh, Perhaps even on a regular basis, you will experience yourself being unclean in this way. The second category listed here is a discharge of any kind. And mostly what is in mind here is blood, or semen. Again, you can go to Leviticus 11 through 15 if you want all the gory details on that. The third category is the touching of a dead body. You were considered ceremonially unclean for a day if you touched a dead animal, and for a week if you touched a human corpse. Why? This seems like some strange, primitive, unenlightened, taboo kind of weirdness. Why Does preparing a father's body for honorable burial make someone unfit to stand in God's presence? Why should someone be excluded from God's presence because of a medical condition? Why 
should faithful married sexual intercourse keep anyone from worship? Well, what we see here is the enormous divide between the holiness of God and the unholiness, the sinfulness, the sinful condition of man. In particular, the curse that came with mankind's fall into sin was what? Death. Our alienation from God is not simply outward behavioral problem. It is death. When the prophet Isaiah entered into God's holy presence, he cried out, Woe to me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The prophet Isaiah went on to say later, We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind to take us away. If our problem is not just behavior, but our very condition, then all the righteous deeds in the world cannot make us acceptable to God. It's why the Apostle Paul cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul answers his question in Ephesians 2 when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus is the one who came to deliver us from death and to wash us clean. His earthly ministry brought into the covenant community those who had been excluded under the old covenant. Luke chapter 5 gives us the account of a man filled with leprosy or whatever skin disease might have been present and understood there. And this leprous man said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus do? Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. And he said, I am willing, be clean. Jesus touched a man who was ceremonially unclean, which would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. And he touched him, and the man was immediately and miraculously cleansed of his physical condition, but the spiritual cleansing was even more miraculous. Luke 8 then gives us the heart-wrenching account of a woman who dealt with chronic bleeding for 12 years. For 12 years, she was ceremonially unclean, such that no one would touch her, lest they become unclean. Is it any wonder that she came trembling when Jesus said, who touched me? But what she found in Jesus was physical and spiritual wholeness, rest for her body and peace for her soul. And so what we find in Jesus is the bridging of holiness and wholeness. So that in Jesus, we have holiness. In the wilderness, under the Old Covenant, Numbers 5 says, those who were ceremonially unclean were to be sent away, to be sent outside the camp. Remember, in the camp was where you dwelt near to God, all the tribes encamped around the tabernacle. But if you were unclean, if you were unholy, you were sent outside the camp, away from the Lord in order to become purified that you might return. Jesus himself voluntarily was taken outside the camp so that we could find holiness and wholeness in him. 
Listen to these from Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Jesus was alienated from God so that we would be alienated no more. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would be forsaken no more. Jesus was cut off from fellowship with the Father so that we would remain in fellowship with the Father forever. That's the first case study. The second case study is verses 5 through 10. Listen again to God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when a man or woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he has wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest along with the ram with which atonement is made for him. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Each man's sacred gifts are his own, but what he gives to the priest will belong to the priest. Now, this section makes a little bit more sense because it deals with sin the way we ordinarily think of sin, actual transgressions and our unpaid debt. These verses actually make the offense deliberately vague. Did you notice that in verse 5? It simply says, when a a man or woman wrongs another in any way, in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty. So the focus here is not so much on defining the sin, but on dealing with the sin. And notice again in verse 5 that there are two dimensions to that sin. It is someone who has wronged another in some way, but it is also an offense against God. When King David was confronted about his sin against Bathsheba and and, uh, Uriah, his confession, which we sang just a few minutes ago from Psalm 51, David said to the Lord, "'Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil,' In your sight. By that, David doesn't mean that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but only against the Lord. But David is clarifying that his sin against another is first and foremost an offense against the holy God. And so, since all sin has these two dimensions to it, then confession and repentance must also have two dimensions to it. And here in Numbers 5, we see that a person who has been unfaithful in some way must make full restitution to the person they have wronged, but they must also offer a ram as an atonement before the Lord. And in this way, the offense against the Lord is recognized publicly. True confession, then, before the Lord is agreement with the Lord that what was done was wrong. This is why we have to teach our children how to confess because it does not come naturally, right? When our children have done something and we tell them they need to apologize and they say, fine, whatever, I'm sorry. (laughs) We go, no, let's try that again. (laughs) Whatever, no, let's try that again. 
And we want to talk to our children to help them to see their heart and to agree that what they did was wrong. And it has to start there. There has to be an understanding that says, yes, I agree. What I did was wrong. And I am sorry that I did that. We also then need to teach our children to forgive so that the response to a confession is not, that's all right. Because it's not all right. An offense took place against God and against you. And so forgiveness is granting of forgiveness. Confession is public, out loud recognition of offense, and it must take responsibility. It's why we also, in teaching confession, make sure the confession says, I'm sorry, I. Confession is not, I'm sorry, you didn't understand. Right? Confession is not, I'm sorry, you were offended. I'm sorry, you're so sensitive. Those are not confessions. Those are further insults. A confession takes responsibility and says, I'm sorry that I said that. I'm sorry that I did that. I don't seek to excuse my actions in any way. Our passage then does more than just look for a simple apology. It looks for heartfelt confession to the sense of full restitution. Full restitution even to the point of not only paying back the full amount, but plus 20%. Any of us who have been wronged by another know this, especially if it takes a while for that person to confess it. We know that we lost more than what was simply taken. Maybe you stole $10 from me, but I was violated in that. And so to pay back that debt is not just to pay it back, but to pay it back and more, such there is the sense of the fullness of confession and restitution. And what we see in all of this is that there has been transgression, even uh, after confession and restitution, there still needs to be sacrifice. And we see in this, we could not possibly pay God back for all the ways in which we have violated him. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And 1 John says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In some wrongdoings, even an additional 20% couldn't possibly cover it, but allows for the repentant person a chance to go above and beyond so there can be true reconciliation among God's people. And that we see that in Jesus, he makes the full payment and then some. We see that a little bit echoed. Perhaps you remember the account of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. And Zacchaeus, who had wronged many people, was then transformed by Jesus. And after being transformed, Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Not just 20% more, but four times the amount. Jesus has paid the debt that we could not possibly pay. This, of course, does not mean that we should just keep racking up the debt because, hey, Jesus can keep paying it off. Earlier in the service, we read from Romans 6. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Zacchaeus didn't continue to defraud people after being transformed by Jesus. We have been rescued so that we can live a new life. 
And the second case study shows us that. This third case study that begins at verse 11 uh, is the longest and is rather bizarre. I'm going to read the whole thing, try and track with it, and we'll break it down afterwards. Listen to God's word, beginning at verse 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him by sleeping with another man, and this is hidden from her husband, and her impurity is undetected, since there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. And if feelings of jealousy come over her husband, and he suspects his wife, and she is impure, or if he is jealous and suspects her, even though she is not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour oil on it or put incense on it, because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to guilt. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar, put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place her hands uh, in her hands the remainder offering, uh, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, if no other man has slept with you, and, if, and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband, and you have defiled yourself by sleeping with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse of the oath. May the Lord cause your people to curse and denounce you when he causes your thigh to waste away and your abdomen to swell. May this water that brings a curse enter your body so that your abdomen swells and your thigh wastes away. And then the woman is to say, Amen, so be it. The priest is to write these curses on a scroll, wash them off into the bitter water. He shall have the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and this water will enter her and cause bitter suffering. The priest is to take from her hands the grain offering for jealousy, wave it before the Lord, and bring it to the altar. The priest is then to take a handful of the grain offering as a memorial offering and burn it on the altar. After that, he is to have the woman drink the water. If she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, then when she is made to drink the water that brings a curse, it will go into her and cause bitter suffering. Her abdomen will swell, her thigh waste away, and she will become accursed among her people. If, however, the woman has not defiled herself and is free from impurity, she will be cleared of guilt and will be able to have children. This then is the law of jealousy. When a woman goes astray and defiles herself while married to her husband, or when feelings of jealousy come over a man because he suspects his wife, the priest is to have her stand before the Lord and is to apply this entire law to her. The husband will be innocent of any wrongdoing, but the woman will bear the consequences of her sin. Now, there are parts of the Bible that are easy to understand. <laughs> and then there are parts of the Bible that are easy to misunderstand. This sounds a lot like a witch hunt. Understanding the principle of what we've seen already, that we are dealing with sin in the community and how it's dealt with, helps us to get to this. The three examples of, no, of Numbers chapter 5 are not detailed or comprehensive, but simply categories for purifying the camp and the people. We've seen the sin of uncleanness, sin as transgression, and here we have sin as 
unfaithfulness. And just as the other two sections didn't deal with every scenario or nuance, neither does this one. This doesn't deal with all the questions that you immediately want to ask about this. Like, what about the other side? What if a wife wonders whether her husband committed adultery? Nor does it deal with those who actually were caught in adultery, all of which is covered elsewhere. The example uh, also doesn't talk so much about someone who is always jealous and wants to keep making accusations again and again. This example is simply put here to connect it to the purity of the camp and the people who are encamped before the holy God. Adultery makes a person unclean. And adultery is, of course, a transgression against God and against another person. And since marriage is the key metaphor for God's relationship with his people, then also adultery is the key metaphor for the breach of that relationship. The entire book of Hosea is that Old Testament imagery. And the New Testament church is repeatedly called the bride of Christ. Now, where the adultery is obvious or known, that's one thing. But how is Israel to deal with a situation where it was suspected? The answer, in short, is to leave it in God's hands. The first step was to bring a simple grain offering. And then the priest prepares a cup containing a mixture of holy water, sacred dust from the floor of the tabernacle. And in this way, the woman is standing before the presence of the Lord, her hair taken down, symbolizing potential uncleanness and transgression and broken relationship. And the priest pronounces a self-imprecatory curse. Essentially, what he says is, if you've done nothing wrong, then this won't harm you. But if you have been unfaithful, then you will become barren. And she's supposed to respond, amen, so be it. It's called a cup of bitter water, not because the water itself was really bitter tasting, although probably not so pleasing either, but because of the potential outcome. To say that her thigh would waste away is probably a euphemism for her reproductive organs. And calling it a bitter cup also recalled the bitter water that the people could not drink in Mara but water that was transformed by the Lord. And there it had been a test that if the people were obedient, they would not suffer the curses that had come upon the Egyptians. And so we have a parallel here that the water was not being considered as magical water. That if she drinks it magically, ordinary water was going to do something to her. There was nothing in the water that could really harm her. Only God himself could bring the curse upon her. It was completely in God's hands. That which can be hidden from one another cannot be hidden from God. It's the difference here to witch hunts and actions of other ancient societies where a woman was thrown into the river to see whether she would drown or not. What we want to see here is that God deals with spiritual adultery. He deals with the spiritual adultery in Israel In a case where Israel was undoubtedly guilty, God himself is the jealous husband and brings her forward to drink the cup of his wrath. That's how it would be according to Numbers chapter 5. And there are moments in Israel's history where a measure of God's anger is levied against Israel, but never in its fullness. There are moments in which enemy nations were allowed to attack and Israel taken into exile for a time. And yet again and again, we see the Lord rescuing and restoring his unfaithful bride. 
having produced a measure of confession and repentance from her along the way. The great grace is because Jesus himself drank the cup of suffering so that he might give us a cup of blessing instead. At the Lord's table of grace, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you, drink it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus is fully faithful in order to atone for our unfaithfulness. He remains faithful even when we do not. And so this passage again and again is simply showing how much uh, God deals graciously with us because we all experience moments of uncleanness. We experience moments of transgression. We experience moments of unfaithfulness. Jesus himself was taken outside the camp so that we could find holiness and wholeness in him. And so today, if you are experiencing uncleanness, spiritually or emotionally for any reason, find your holiness and wholeness in Jesus. If you are aware of your transgressions against God or against another, or experiencing their transgressions against you, find holiness and wholeness in Jesus. If you are experiencing unfaithfulness in any way, find holiness and wholeness in Jesus. And may the truth set us free. Amen.